is David A. Fields, author of The Irresistible Consultant's Guide to Winning Clients, and you're listening to the Quest for the Best podcast. Have you ever wondered why some consultants constantly ride the feast and famine roller coaster while others fill their pipelines and have a steady flow of business? No one has all the answers, but David Fields sure shares some great insights and techniques in the upcoming interview. Be sure to take notes when we talk about having learning conversations with prospects and a special way of asking for referrals that's sure to increase your success in this area. I'm so glad you're here. Hi, this is Bill Ringel, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock their growth potential. Joining me today is David Fields. David is founder of Ascending Consulting and works with business owners who want to build lucrative, lifestyle-friendly consulting practices. He's advised leaders and consultancies ranging from one-person startups to the consulting divisions of major corporations, such as Applied Materials and Parks Bell. His latest book, The Irresistible Consultant's Guide to Winning Clients, is one of Amazon's highest-rated books on the business of consulting. He's a return guest on my quest for the best, and I'm delighted to be spending time together again with you. Welcome, David. Thank you, Bill. It's always fun to chat with you. Same here. So tell me, what's something that you're excited about in your business right now? Oh, I'm excited about about a zillion things. <laughs> uh, so uh, I'll let me see. Let me, I'll name a few things that I'm excited about. One, I'm excited that I'm about to head off on a month-long vacation. So I'm taking a month to away from the business in Italy. And so that's exciting. And you know what? It, at first I was thinking when, you, when I heard you asking this question, I wonder if I should mention that. But, of course, it is part of the business. One of the joys of running a small practice is the practice serves you if you've built it right. So this practice is serving me. And I'm able to take a month away. What else am I excited about? I have had so many fabulous conversations with um, new prospects over the past week or so. And they're just coming fast and furious. And that's always fun. That's always exciting. And uh, something you and I have talked about offline a little bit is a program that I'm building for smaller consulting firms, for solos especially, and uh, for really small boutique shops. Um, that I've done a beta, uh, two beta runs of, and it's going fabulously. So those are all things I'm excited about. You're getting all sorts of conversations with new prospects. What have you been doing lately that's been increasing the pace of conversations you've been having with new prospects? So there are a few things. One, creating content over time, just like you're doing with your podcast. Uh, I do more with my writing, with occasional speaking, but especially through my writing. That builds over time. And as uh, people pass around articles, and especially my newer book, uh, The Irresistible Consultant's Guide to Winning Clients, that creates a lot of inquiries. People pick it up at an airport uh, or something like that, and then they give it to someone, and that drives inquiries. And I'm doing what I talk about people and talk about with people and tell them to do, which is outreach. I'm talking with people I know. I'm asking for introductions, talking to them. And I have conversations that do not start off as selling conversations. They start off as learning conversations. And a certain percentage of them naturally morph into 
people asking whether perhaps I could help them. So a lot of people just lean forward as they heard you say the phrase learning conversations. Describe what you mean by that and maybe share with us a question that characterizes a learning conversation from either a rambling conversation of low value (laughs) or one that's a hard sell sales conversation, both of which are unsophisticated ways to build a a good quality relationship. Yeah, so so when I approach people, whether there's especially new people, so someone I may be introduced to or someone I may have some even very cool association with, maybe we're we're, uh, vaguely connected on LinkedIn or, or who knows, I will ask them, now let's say it's a leader of a boutique firm in, pick your place, doesn't matter, in Boston. Sure. And I, I will reach out and say, look, I, I understand that you lead this firm, Consulting Inc., small boutique firm. I would love to pick your brain for 15 minutes. That's it. That's all I ask. And Or if we have an introduction, I was talking with Bill. Bill says you run a really great Firm, I would love to chat with you for a few minutes and just, just pick your brains about your journey. Now, some people will be skeptical. Some people will say, what's this really about? And I will explain. In order for me to remain a thought leader in consulting, I have to talk with people and understand what they're doing. Beyond just what I do and beyond what my clients do, I need to talk with other people too. Most people will accept that. And then in conversation, I just follow up on that. I, I literally ask about their journey. What have they done to get them where, they, where they're going? Uh, often I'll ask what they've done that, that's been particularly successful in growing their firm or in growing some aspect of their firm. If we're talking about business development, I might ask what they've done that's been t- particularly successful. If they mention something that's unusual, I will jump all over that. Because that's what I really want to know, not what I've heard before, but what I haven't heard. I'll ask them what they've tried that hasn't worked, what they've done that's failed. Many people that you and I can imagine, and maybe people who are listening to this um, podcast now, are saying to themselves, oh, I could never do that. And seriously, it requires a bit of positioning, belief in yourself, and other attributes in order to say to someone, as a thought leader, I need to be constantly expanding my horizons and learning from others. And it also requires a degree of humility to say, I don't know everything. But even if you don't view yourself as a thought leader, you could say in order to become a thought leader or just to become better at what I do, better at helping my clients, I need to learn what companies who are not my clients do, which is absolutely true. But I think you're absolutely right. You have to be willing to admit that you don't know, and you have to have a genuine desire to learn. And I do think that, that most people in, in our field and most people who are entrepreneurs and growing a business do have a genuine desire to learn. And so just uh, give in to that desire. I hear you. You're saying fan the flame of your curiosity and let it lead you. So a lot of times people who are selling consulting and doing it actually as a business, not as something that they're doing in between looking for full-time jobs, but right. if you're building a consulting practice, you often will find that you, you run into difficulty either when looking to sell larger and larger projects or sell to larger and larger clients. There, there are different steps and obstacles that people encounter. What have you found that's been some of the most common ones that people encounter when looking to sell consulting to a, a larger client? What you just said is just filled with so many misconceptions. The biggest obstacles are all internal. They're all self-made. Let me name a, a couple. Let me actually push back and challenge the whole notion because I used to be a believer that you need to have win, uh, bigger clients. 
you have to go for bigger companies. And in fact, my practice originally, before I was working with consulting firms, when I was working only with corporations, and now I work with corporations, but not so many now. But my belief was, you know, billion dollars and up, big companies, because big companies have big purses. And there's a certain amount of truth to that. However, I have learned over the past three to five years that small companies to under $25 million will happily give me six-figure projects. Now, I will admit I haven't won a seven-figure project from a small company, but who cares? There's a little company, a little medical devices company in Ohio that I'm doing work for right now that year after year after year gives me six figures of business. And they are, again, they're under $25 million. There are businesses as small as just a couple million dollars, two or three million dollars, that give me six figures of business. Now, that said, if you're constantly just targeting small fry that have small pockets, small pocketbooks, and you're not hitting big issues for them, valuable issues, then you'll struggle. So then you do need to learn, you know, move to bigger companies where even a less valuable issue is still valuable. The big thing, though, is it's all internal. It's all this belief that somehow big companies either know more or their problems are different or the, it's harder to sell, and, and none of that is true. Just none of it is true. In fact, I think it's easier to win, win projects from large corporations than it is to win from small corporations, especially privately owned companies. Because privately owned companies, the decision maker, especially if it's still an owner, founder owner, is deciding between your project and whether to, to buy a boat, right, or, or take their vacation to Italy, right? It's these sort of personal, non-business decisions. Whereas in a public corporation, you are straight out dealing with business. You're dealing with a professional decision-making approach, typically. And uh, you, you don't run into the kind of weird stuff of the mixed personal business um, issues that come up when you're, when you're working with a privately owned company. So you seem to be describing and making the argument that there's a myth about pursuing large companies and that um, significant contracts can only be won from large companies. And you pointed out that even companies that are in the $25 million range, you've successfully, first-person evidence, been able to achieve six-figure projects from them because of the value it you add. And then you started to say that it's easier with public companies. Help clarify for me, what is it that you're recommending? Is it, and I think there are a couple parts in there. One part might be, don't think that the big contracts can only be achieved with large companies. And then there's a second part about decision-making where you want it to be a professional decision based upon business results rather than competing with an investment in your, your consulting practice versus something personal for the owner. Is there some other piece in there that I was missing, David? What, what I would say is don't worry so much about your target unless you are constantly running into small companies that don't have money. The place to start is not by defining your target. The number one attribute of the right target, of a right prospect, is that you can reach them. That's more important than anything else. So the very, the, the very first place you look, the starting point for your definition of a, of a prospective client is, can you reach them? Will they take your phone call? Or will they respond to your email? Can you get in conversation? The second part of that is you look to say, what are the high-value problems that the people I can reach are struggling with that I could potentially solve? And if you do that, you can build yourself a big business. I bet you that's so, quite common. People who come to you who are looking to grow their consulting practices 
and you say to them, it's important to find the people you could reach, and what they do, instead of looking to reach people who actually have the ability to spend, they reach out to people who are the most comfortable to reach, which who aren't decision makers, who don't have budgetary authority. What are some of the, the common ways that you encourage people to what I would say is upgrade their network. So what you're talking about are what I'll call A2 relationships, meaning they're strong relationships. That's why they're rated an A as opposed to a B or C. So a strong relationship, but they're a two, meaning they're an influencer, not a decision maker. A one would be a decision maker, a two is an influencer, and a three really can't give you anything that will help win a project. So you're talking about A2 relationships. And what you want, of course, is as many A1 relationships as possible. Well, how do you create them? Well, A2 relationships, those people are easy to to talk to. They're not threatening. They can't say no because they can't say yes. (laughs) And they're A, so you're already comfortable with them. What you do is you ask for an introduction. Who's the the decision maker? Who Who in your organization would actually make the decision about bringing someone like me or my firm in? Would you be willing to broker an introduction? I would love to learn from that person. You have to get outside your comfort zone, right? That, that's one thing we know is your comfort zone is where you are right now and will continue to deliver the results that you're seeing right now, that you're enjoying right now. If you want to enjoy better results, if you want to grow, if you want to progress, you're going to have to be uncomfortable a little bit. There you go. Another great insight where business growth has to start with personal growth. You've got to get outside your comfort zone in order to grow your own business. Let's go back to outreach for a minute, David. What, what's your current take on the state of trade association in terms of connecting with influencers and building new relationships? The trade associations are, are one of what I call the five marketing musts in consulting. So I talk about if there's five ways that you can really build visibility effectively. Speaking, writing, networking, digital presence, and trade associations. And trade associations sometimes se- seems like the odd one out. And the reason it's included is because I've seen it work. Trade associations can be very effective if you approach them correctly and if you understand that it's a long-term commitment, not a short-term commitment. I work with a a firm that's out of Virginia. Most of their work's actually in New England, but they're out of Virginia. And one of the first things we did is we went through the exercise of figuring out what they need to do and how they're going to build visibility. And I suggested to them that they join a trade association in their narrow area that we identified and suggest to the executive director there that they do a joint study, that they'll do the work and do the research. And as a result, the trade association would get a a white paper and some stuff to talk about and some value to add to their members. And this is something I've done with uh, numerous firms. They did this, and it just slowed their business because by virtue of the fact that they had the the imprimatur, the permission of the overall trade association, they were able to reach out to every single decision maker basically in their category, right, basically in their industry. Have a conversation, not a selling conversation, a learning conversation, but an introductory conversation. Then they got to be on stage presenting the results of this survey, which everybody wanted to hear about. So they get to to all sorts of credibility, and their visibility and their presence reinforced. And, of course, quite a few of the folks they talked to wanted to talk with them more. So there you go. That's one way you use trade association. To make the distinction that consulting firms and consultants are joining firms where they'll find buyers, not their peers. Any trade association, you're going to find other consulting firms there. But you are absolutely looking for associations where your client organizations are attending. 
So what about the trade journals that are distributed in print? Are they as important as, as, important as they used to be compared yes. to web articles and blogs? What are some of the people who are working in your programs finding effective in terms of print? Well, well whether it's print or, or the digital version, they're still trade-oriented, meaning your articles and your content are going to a very targeted audience, and it's still very effective. It's still more effective than putting your article into a general publication like Inc. or Fast Company because people who, who read Fast Company or who read Inc., um, th- those are great magazines, and I don't discourage, want to discourage anybody from getting their articles placed there. But remember that your audience tends to browse those, those types of publications. They're going there because their general interest, general learning. They're not going to those publications looking for a solution to their specific problems, by and large. Whereas when you're in a trade industry publication, online or in print, you're talking with an audience that's very focused on solving their specific problems. And if you can speak to their specific problems, they're far more interested. They're more likely to talk to you. And that's important to start out with is to understand the purpose and how you're going to measure the success of your outreach. I actually think that you can measure it in a, in a, in a bunch of ways. There are some leading indicators that I encourage people to track. Um, and, and I encourage people to set up their CRMs, to have a CRM and to set it up in a very specific way, which will allow you to, to track how you're doing with your outreach and whether you're having challenges at the very beginning with, with your, your message, if you're leaving a voicemail or your email, if you're sending an email, or if you're having trouble converting people from a basic conversation to some level of interest. Let's talk a little bit more about how you set up just a, a basic dashboard with leading indicators and trailing indicators for outreach. Do you basically direct outreach? Do you do exposures in print? What, what's your model and, and your perspective on that? My model is you can track the stuff that you control, and that's the only stuff that's, that's really that much worth tracking. Uh, and there's a difference between goals and behaviors. And this is something that actually just came up on my, my website recently where someone was asking a question, and they'd set a goal, a personal goal, to lose 30, to lose the 30 pounds. And I said, it's fine to have a goal, but you can't really do anything with it. What you can do is, is have a, a behavior. So your behavior may be to run every morning at 8 a.m. or 6 a.m. Or your behavior may be to say no to bags of potato chips. <laughs> right? And I, I think the same thing is true in the work we do. Goals are great, and it's important to have goals, to write down your goals, and even more important to – keep track of specific behaviors. So impressions, I don't take a look at because I don't control impressions. Impressions are a result. They're not a behavior. What you can control is how many times you reach out. And I don't worry too much about it. I look at my book sales. One of the things that's interesting is that it's consistently ranked on Amazon. What do you attribute that to other than the fact that people read it and they tell others to buy it and they'll benefit from it? Yeah, I've been very fortunate. This is a, this is a, it happens to be a good book. Right, so the, the reviews of it are outstanding. And as a result, a huge percentage of people who read it get at least one more copy to give to someone else. Now, my team that's marketing, they, do try, they, they tweet it now and again, even though I have no idea how many Twitter followers I have, but it's not, not gigantic. The community that, that listens to me and follows me, they, they already know about the book. Talking to people like you, uh, and podcasts will will often give a create a bump in in book sales, and you know we're doing a few other things. We have a couple of 
interesting marketing campaigns that we run through influencers. So, David, another part of outreach is asking for referral. What's your impression as to why, what's your impression and experience as to why it makes it so difficult for consultants to ask for referrals at the first level and at the second level ask for them effectively? Oh, well, I think most people absolutely suck at asking for referrals. I was at a, a conference up in Toronto. I was sitting in the, you know, in the group. There were probably 50 people there. It was small. And the person who was leading this did sort of a really bad referral kind of pitch. And then said, God, does anybody know how to do this? And so I raised my hand and I said, here's a much easier way to ask for referral. And the whole room, you could feel them go, oh, oh my gosh. And what would you offer to help people become better at, at asking referrals? So here's the typical question. The typical question is, hey, Bill, who do you know who could use my service? Right? Some, some version of that. That's an awful question. It's, it's horrible to ask, and it's horrible to, to listen to, and so you probably don't ask. The, the reason it's horrible to ask is it's impossible to answer. There's a much easier question, which is, uh, I would say, Bill, you have you've interviewed probably, I don't know, how, how many people in the past six months? Five, 10, 15? Probably 40-something. 40 40-something, 40 even better. Okay. Of those 40 people, which two or three were the absolute most interesting? That you can answer. I'm not asking you who needs me. I'm just asking you who's interesting. And here's what happens. And you're going to say, God, well, you know, Joe Smith was fascinating. Loved him. Okay, now all of a sudden you're in a positive mindset. You're not in a defensive, negative, oh, my God, what is this guy asking me to do mindset? You're in a positive mindset because you're thinking about somebody interesting. And I say, would you be willing to broker an introduction to, to this interesting person? You're going to be like, yeah. You're being positive. Now you've got positive associations with me. And I get introduced to somebody who's interesting. These people who are interesting are people who are doing things. They're people who are in action. They're people who are moving and shaking and making a difference, who know they need help, who hire consultants. It takes away all of the risk from making a recommendation or referral as well because it's not setting up anyone's economic risk. It's simply saying, oh, you're an interesting person, David. I'd love to introduce you to other interesting people. It kind of goes back to the principle, I think you mentioned it in the book of Guide to Winning Clients for Consultants, is that in order to attract a higher quality of person, you've got to become a more interesting person. You've got to become uh, and some... And a more interested person. Yes. It's more important to be interested in others than to be focused on making yourself interesting. I think that there, there are both parts to it, and I would agree that yours being interested in others is something that is more important to cultivate so that people are focused on asking good questions and it leads to making stronger connections. Yeah. And, and you know, and always remember, consulting is not about you. It's about the clients. So it, it, the more you try to make it about you, the harder the business is. The more you make it about them, the easier the business. I was working with a, another firm and chatting with a, a woman who just took over a firm that's about 100, 120 consultants up in another firm up in Toronto. And she has spent the past three months meeting, just having dinners with the executives, senior executives at her, in her industry, in her target industry, learning conversations, right? The sort of stuff that we talk about. So we had this conversation right when she's going to take over this practice. That's what she's been doing, not pitching the business she took over, learning. As a result of those learning conversations with the senior executives, she's adding 40 new people. That's significant. And that's the power of building relationships in a business that's driven by relationships. Absolutely right. And it's the power of being focused on them, not on you. So you also talk about this in your book, and I'm, I'm 
flipping through it, looking for the chart. I think I found it on page six. And it's all about, it's a great chart because it talks about what typical consultants think and what right-side-up thinking is all about. And it's basically, are you focused on your prospect, your client, and their issues? Because that's what they're thinking about. What are a couple of the ways that you help people stay focused on that in order to be of better service to their clients? I actually think you can, anybody's listening, and, and we do in our own business, can think about all the different aspects of your business, not just pursuit, not just, not just trying to find clients, but how you talk to people every day, how you respond, how you deliver your results, how you invoice, every single touch point, every touch point you have with a, a, a prospect or a client. And you can think, how could I make that more right side up? It's a difficult exercise, and it's also a very interesting and rewarding exercise. You can go from very simple things like starting your emails with the word you rather than the word I, rather than saying, I enjoyed meeting you, which is about you, you talk about yourself. You can say, you were a delight to chat with, which is talking about them. It makes it clear you're thinking about them. So it can be as simple as that. It can be as sophisticated as making sure you, you are starting all your proposals with your client rather than you. It can be around your response time. It can be, uh, and for instance, at the beginning of an engagement, I will ask my clients, how do you prefer to communicate? Mm. If something's important, how would you like me to get in touch with you? Do you want me to call you, email you, text you, use WhatsApp, God forbid, (laughs) send smoke signals? Right, because that's making communication about them. It is hard. This is—it's one of these concepts that's simple and hard, because we are—we are wired to think about ourselves. We are wired to do things that are easy for us. So we have to push through that wiring to focus on them. So, David, this is terrific stuff. I have four questions I want to ask because I've been asking everyone lately, and I'd love to get your answers to these questions. Are you ready? I have no idea, but go for it. All I'm asking for is a willingness. <laughs> I'm absolutely willing. Will be, uh, I'm, I'm up against competition now. Let's see how it goes. Or maybe it's just benchmarking. So ask the questions, and we'll have fun with them. What are the key components of your routine for daily success? Like most folks, having some level of ritual is very important because it takes willpower out of the equation. So for me, I know that I have to write before I go to the gym or do anything else because it's so important that I get, get writing done, and, and writing is a big part of what I do. So first things first, I get up and write. Then I take care of myself, meaning I, I go to the gym, I do those sorts of things, and then start my business day. I also protect my, my days and my time. There's certain time cut out for clients, and there's a lot of time that's not cut out for clients, and that allows me to build the business. What's the book that you've given the most as a gift in the last year? I'll give you a really unusual answer, one I'm, I will absolutely bet no one else has, has uh, mentioned. There's a book called How to, to Talk So Your Kids Will Listen and Listen So Your Kids Will Talk. I may have the title slightly wrong. At, at this point, the book is, is a little old. This is a book about parenting ostensibly. What it's really about is listening. And what's a tool or system you use for staying on track and productive? In my little group, we use uh, quite a few tools. We use to we use a CRM. We use PipeDrive. I'm a big fan of PipeDrive. You can use anything, but PipeDrive's good. We use a product called Redbooth, which is manages our projects and keeps us all, you know, kind of uh, one place for for all of our tasks, um, as well as as Google Drive. 
we have a, a matter of fact, as soon as I'm done with this call, we will have our team call and we go through our weekly planner, which is sitting on Google Drive that we all share. And we also we also have a, something called Resilio, which allows us to have a um, sort of like Dropbox, but it's not in the cloud. It's just on our computers. And so we can very quickly send files to one another, and I find that to be useful. And what's one of the biggest misconceptions you've found that people have about the field of consulting? That it's easy <laughs> or that it should be easy? What's the biggest misconception? I, I, I think that's one. I think another one is one we, we talked about earlier, which is that you have to target bigger and bigger clients in order to make more money. The other one I run into all the time is people think they have a visibility challenge, meaning not enough prospective clients know them. Um, and if they could be on more podcasts, if they could speak more, if they could write more, if they could somehow get more people aware of them, they would get more business. Point of fact, that's not their problem, nine times out of ten. Their problem is impact. When they are talking to prospects, those prospects aren't perking up saying, ooh, that's a problem I have. How could you help? And so it's not an issue of not being in front of enough people. It's an issue of not being sticky and having an impact when you are in front of people. And what's the best advice you've ever received? I think good advice is a couple things are just be yourself. Don't, don't try to be anyone else. And it's more the relationship is more important than being right. And I find in consulting that's especially true. We don't have to be the smartest. We don't have to be right. Well, David, once again, you highlight why the show is called My Quest for the Best, not My Quest for the Mediocre. That would be a pretty funny podcast, man. You shared with us great ideas and opened our eyes to having learning conversations with others to widen our network and deepen our thoughts about what else is going on in the world that would be useful, as well as building different types of relationships. You helped us classify relationships into three different buckets, decision makers, influencers, and none of the above, in order to help focus on um, introductions that help advance business. You gave us so many ideas about outreach and making distinctions about goals and behaviors. It was just so much great information that you shared with us, and I just want to thank you so much for joining me again on My Quest for the Best. Oh, thank you. You asked great questions. And, David, where can we find out more about you and your work? Bill, I tell people to go to davidafields.com, and they will find a wealth of resources. If you go, you'll just find everything you need to build a better consulting practice. Great. Thank you so much, David. Oh, thank you. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments, and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.